there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to build a career in finance, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the chief financial officer and chief operating officer at doctor.com. That's a digital platform to help private medical practices and enterprise practices manage their consumer facing online data. And James has spent most of the last 10 years working in various roles and capacities in the finance and accounting world. But before I introduce you to James Kurz, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter, and it comes out bright and early on Monday mornings with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is James Kurz, Chief Financial Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Doctor.com, which was founded in 2012 with the mission to provide better customer experience at every step of the digital patient journey. As the CFO and COO, James oversees strategic planning and budgeting, capital management, investor relations, and accounting. And he also, he and his team, manage human resource functions, compliance, and corporate operations. Prior to joining Doctor.com, James spent four years at a global humanitarian and development organization, an NGO, where he worked around the world to incubate and accelerate socially responsible enterprises with high commercial potential. As the director of financial services at that NGO, Mercy Corps, James completed major transactions and engagements across the Americas, Africa, Europe, and Asia. James began his career in 2007 in public accounting. We are going to get into all of that in this main Time for Coffee interview. And if you're interested in learning how to break into the world of finance, please check out show notes to see if James's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. James, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I sure am. It's pretty cold outside today, but I'm one of those unusual people that likes iced coffee even in the winter. So I am ready to go. And how do you like make the, is this just like regular brewed coffee that you put over ice? I go to Whole Foods actually, and I buy Grady's cold brew by the bushel and drink that. Is it in a bottle? Grady's? I'm not familiar with it. Comes in a bottle and it's brewed in the Bronx, actually, which is interesting. You don't normally think of the Bronx for coffee, but it's it's delicious. So I should have said, James, how you brewing? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Maybe next time. (laughs) Okay, next time. Next time. Well, let us start, James, with 
this. I really want to congratulate you and your colleagues at doctor.com because just a couple months ago, we're actually doing this interview towards the end of December 2020. Just a couple months ago in October, you were acquired by Press Ganey, which is a quality, a care quality services firm. So how does that feel? It's great. I mean, it's it's really exciting. Press Ganey, maybe not so well known outside of healthcare circles, but within healthcare, a very, very well-known company. It's been around for a few decades and grown tremendously. Lots, lots of new colleagues. And it's a great outcome for the the people who, you know, worked really hard to make doctor.com a success. And the vast majority of folks are staying on with Press Ganey and they're looking forward to a really, really bright future. So I'm very proud of it and very happy about it. Are you able to say how much it was acquired for? I'm not. That's uh, not something I can share, but it was, it was a large, a significant number. And, you know, certainly, certainly a large number to, to most of us and, you know, a re- really, really nice outcome. When you get into, the startup space or the venture capital space, obviously one of the things that you want to have happen is that the company goes on to a great future. And it's not just about making money. It's also about, you know, building something for posterity. And it's really nice to have the organization that you spent so much time and energy and very, very long hours and and maybe even a few tears on uh, creating live on into the future and find a home in an organization that you know is going to be there for the long run. So it's, it's very rewarding. Awesome. Well, I was thinking before we actually dig into what you do as the CFO, COO, or what you were doing until just a couple months ago at doctor.com, maybe we could kick things off, James, by just getting a quick 101 on doctor.com on this tech startup. It was founded eight years ago, but what exactly does it do? It's a, you know, a really interesting company that now is in pharmaceuticals. It's we're in hospitals and health systems. We're in private practices like your local dentist office. But fundamentally, what the company was built around was the idea that if you are a patient looking for care online, you might Google a dentist near me or you might even Google the name of a physician you were referred to. And all these different websites pop up, health grades, vitals, WebMD, Google itself pops up with information. There's many, many different sites across the Internet. And on each of those websites, there's the listing for physicians that work at hospitals, physicians that work by themselves in small offices. It's it's everywhere. And if you're a physician uh, or, you know, you're an organization that employs lots and lots of physicians, it's really, really hard to keep all of those different places online that you appear up to date and accurate. So sometimes you'll see physicians that are retired, physicians that have passed away. The information will be out of date. There won't be any picture. And if you compare that to the travel industry where you might want to book a hotel in Mongolia, and if you go on a whole number of websites, dozens of websites, you can actually go and find a hotel in Mongolia and see pictures and reviews and information about the hotel and then actually book the hotel right there on that website. When you show up in Mongolia, you're likely to actually have a confirmed booking. It's a really nice experience as a consumer. In the healthcare space, it's just totally different. There's all of those things that we just mentioned, like inaccurate data. So as a company, doctor.com really sought out to change that and make the experience a lot better. And that's really helpful for organizations that employ physicians like hospitals and health systems. It's really helpful for patients that are seeking care. The last thing that you want to have to contend with when you're asking questions about your health or trying to find a doctor for the care that you need is to have to contend with office information that's out of date or hours are not correct or insurance information that's not accurate or just a, a difficult time finding a physician that's appropriate for you. And so we were really trying to build the infrastructure to modernize that. And of course, now we're under a much bigger umbrella, but the, all of it is around trying to improve the 
experience of patients that are looking for care and building all of the infrastructure underneath that's required to do that. Got it. Okay. Well, thanks so much. So you joined doctor.com in 2016 and you didn't join as the CFO, you joined as the director of finance. Now that was four years before COVID. Did you have a background in health tech? What was it that attracted you to this particular tech startup? I was completely new to startups and completely new to venture capital and actually hadn't really worked a job that was based in the U.S. for quite a while when I started. So really quickly, my early career was in public accounting, the first uh, year or so out of college. And once I actually kind of got into public accounting, I learned a lot of good things and I worked with some great people. But I realized pretty quickly that that's not actually what I wanted to do with my career. I was focusing on tax accounting, wasn't that interested in it. And so I went to graduate school and all of my classmates went to work at hedge funds and Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and places like that. And I got really interested in developing countries and emerging markets and had actually done my spring break in Haiti when I was in graduate school. I got to know about something called microfinance. Microfinance is essentially banking for low-income people, individual entrepreneurs in low-income countries, places like Haiti, where people really are sort of excluded by traditional banks, um, but need access to loans, need access to safe and affordable banking services. It's something that's really blown up over the last 20 years or so around the world and, and been a really good force for good. So I got very involved in that in Haiti and I eventually went on, as you mentioned in the intro, to work for Mercy Corps and work on lots of really interesting socially responsible enterprises around the world. But I was on the road all the time. I was traveling like three or four weeks a month and I was you know, just not really having much of a life back uh, in the US and not really being able to build that, that foundation. So I said, look, I'm going to get off the road. I'm going to do something different. And it turns out that I've subsequently found the skills that I acquired doing all these different things around the world, constantly dropping into different countries, different cultures, different legal jurisdictions, and having to kind of create something out of nothing are really, really good skills for for startups and for venture capital-backed companies. And obviously, healthcare is something that I think a lot of people feel strongly about is really important. Certainly this year with COVID, we all have a, a newfound appreciation for people on the front lines and scientists who are doing research and all those kinds of things. So I was definitely interested in healthcare. I was interested in healthcare technology and how we can advance things. And I got to know doctor.com and, and that's the rest is kind of history. I, I fortunate, was fortunate enough to get the job. And you know, when I, as you said, I came in as a director, as the first finance hire of the company and built it out from there and, and really got to become a, a big part of the company story over the last four years. Yeah, absolutely. You were regularly and rapidly promoted from the director of finance in 2016 to the VP of finance and operations in 2017 to the chief financial officer in 2019. And then in July of 2020, you added another title to your CFO responsibilities and became the CFO and chief operating officer, the COO. Could you break down for us, James, what you do, what you did until a couple months ago as the CFO, and then what you did as the chief operating officer? What's the distinction between those two roles? 
Sure. So the CFO and the COO in any organization, if they are two distinct different people, typically need to be very, very closely aligned with each other because there really are so many different ways that the operations of a business influences the financial outcomes and the financial needs of the business and vice versa. And so in a smaller organization and some organizations, it actually can make sense to have both of those skills underneath one person. And in my case, that was that was how we did things. So in addition to being responsible for the accounting department, which is really looking at where's the company been and making sure that all of that is tallied up in a way that is easily understood by all the stakeholders and comparable to other businesses and comparable to the past of the business itself. I also was focused on finance, which maybe is a little bit more strategic in terms of planning and budgeting for the future. Investor relations, making sure that the company had adequate capital to meet its objectives, thinking about different ways to bring capital into the business, thinking about our bank accounts and our treasury and making sure the right amount of money was in the right place. But all of those decisions around planning and budgeting and finance and how much capital needs to go into the business really is connected to the operations of the business itself. And that includes things like human resources. For many, many businesses, especially tech companies, the people of the business are by far the largest cost that the company has. Oftentimes, it can be 80 or 90% of the budget of the entire company. It can be the people that work for the company. And so when you think about making sure that you have the right resources in the right places, that that really is a discussion around people. So I was thinking about recruiting. I was thinking about making sure that people are in the right positions. I was thinking about making sure that we had the right budget for those people and, and figuring out what the career paths were for the individual people that worked for us and really thinking about how to advance the company forward in that way. Oftentimes, a CFO or a COO can also be very involved in things that, you know, are legal for the company, whether it's compliance issues or it's just the day-to-day legal things that the company needs to be thinking about or or even troubleshooting because things do come up in the life of a company. So I had a big interaction with sort of deciding whether we needed to actually, I'm not a lawyer myself, but involve the lawyers or or maybe not. Maybe it was something that we could handle without involving lawyers. And then, of course, also thinking about how do all the different departments of the company actually function and work together to achieve the objectives of the organization. And that's really where the operations part comes in. You know, you get everybody around a table from the management team or the executive team and you think about the big picture strategic things that you want to achieve that's broken down into sub-strategies, maybe at the department level, maybe at the team level. And then there's, of course, the tactics that get applied to actually push the organization forward and get things done and make things happen. And in the, the role that I was in, it was very nice to be able to see the whole chessboard at once and think about how to move the pieces around and then work really closely with the rest of the people in the organization to get their feedback, get their views, have them be active participants and actually figure out how to make things happen. And that's that's the, the leadership dimension of a role, like being a CFO or a COO or having both of those roles together is really getting to work closely with people and basically work as a team to advance the organization forward. But in, in my role, I played oftentimes a lot of sort of coordinating of that and enabling of that and helping people achieve their, their highest potential. Sounds great. And I know that you were intimately involved, James, in the recent acquisition of Dr.com by Press Ganey. But before 
the acquisition. What did a typical day or even a typical week look like for you? I think we're both laughing because I'm sure there really wasn't. I'm sure it was a little (laughs) nuts. But could you kind of just paint the picture for us, broad brush strokes? Yeah, sure. So definitely not many typical days and and a lot of fast organizations, fast moving organizations are like that. But one of the things that you actually have to have as a skill is there are certain things that you want to have done on a regular cadence. You want them to be highly repeatable and you want them to happen like clockwork. So the beginning of the week, think about, okay, let's take a look at the bank accounts and make sure that where we projected we were going to be to start the week is where we actually are and troubleshoot that and think about that. Every single month, you want to make sure that the books get closed, the accounting books get closed and they get closed on time and they're accurate. And then you have to report it out to people and you need to do that on a particular cadence. So some things happen regularly and actually the goal is to try to make them as automated and as regular as possible and and of course as high quality as possible. But other things are absolutely not planned and absolutely Absolutely. You go into the week not knowing what they're going to be. You know, so we typically started a week off with an executive meeting, basically getting everybody around a table and saying, hey, here's what I worked on last week. Here's what I'm working on this week. Here are the things that are top of mind for me and the things that I'm you know, most concerned about. And let's discuss them as a group as needed or otherwise figure out how we're going to tackle them this week. And so that's kind of where you, you start off your, your week. And it sets the agenda to some extent. So maybe you're filling your calendar with individual one-on-one meetings that you need to have with key people. Maybe it's realizing that, you know, we have an issue that's come up and we don't have the right law firm to to handle that particular issue. So let's go find the right law firm and bring them up to speed and and get them moving on that particular item. Maybe it's part of the uh, planning process for the year. And so you're gathering feedback from all the different department heads and figuring out what their needs are for the year to come. Let's say it's 2021 and figuring out how to square that with all the other objectives of the organization and the means of the organization. But a lot of times the the actual things that you need to do in a given week are in real time because sales close in real time, successes and, you know, misses happen in real time. And particularly when you're an organization that's trying to do something new in a new market, the way that Dr.com was and and the team continues to do as part of Prescani, it's very unpredictable. And a lot of times, you know, you, you go into the week or you go into the month with a plan and some of those things you have to follow through on them. But some of those things, you have to be adaptable. And that's actually a really important skill set to have is that, that intellectual flexibility and that emotional flexibility. Because if you if you really want things to just sort of be predictable and in a straight line and we have a plan and we're just going to follow the plan, you know, it, it just a lot of times in a small organization, that's just not how it works. And so you have to, to build up your your tolerance for that change. No doubt. One of the, as I'm listening to you, James, talk about the functions of your job, your responsibilities and what a week could look like, I'd have to imagine time management and your ability to focus and be super efficient in what you do is critically important. How do you manage that? I couldn't agree more. And actually, uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but one of the things that I found is really, really important is, of course, sometimes you have to sit down and you just have to work through your tasks and get down your list. But I also spend a little bit of time every day and, and definitely some time every week just reflecting and just sitting back and actually being quiet. Back when we used to go into the office, it, it hasn't been that way for a while now. You know, I would actually find a conference room that nobody was using and I would sit in the conference room and sometimes I wouldn't even actually necessarily sit there with my laptop open. I might even just 
basically take a break. I'm, I'm a big fan of European soccer, European football. So, you know, a lot of times the games are actually on during the day. If you're, you're in the United States, and I might watch the game for a little while or something like that, because creating that space actually allows you to reflect more clearly on what the priorities are and where you need to invest your time. And sometimes it even allows your brain to just realize something that you weren't thinking of, see things in a different way. It's very similar to how a lot of people do their best thinking in the shower, you know, the same kind of principle. And I find that if you're just constantly driving forward and you're constantly focused on the tasks, you don't have the space for your brain to, to step back and think about things from a, from a different vantage point. And so that's a really important part of the, the approach that I take to things. I love that, James. And in fact, someone I interviewed early on in the, the first handful of interviews I did on Time for Coffee is somebody who practices a particular type of meditation. And he mentioned the description that he used was radical headspace, creating radical headspace. And I realized that that is, in fact, what I had done after I left the organization where you and I first met, Mercy Corps, and wasn't really sure what I was going to do next. And I had so much time on my hands and my gray matter was not getting distracted. It wasn't getting filled with like the day to day of carrying out a job. I had a lot of free time to think. And it was through that that I came up with the idea for time for coffee. I don't think it would have happened had it not been for that because it's like you can sort of dream. I'm getting excited here. I'm knocking my, <laughs> my bat. You can, <laughs> I'm just, I'm gesturing. You can dream. You, you can just kind of let your imagination go. And it really provides clarity. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I absolutely had the same experiences you've had with it. And interestingly enough, idleness can be one of the most productive things that you do, ironically. Fantastic. And I think it's so important to think about that in the context of a full-time job and creating headspace for yourself. Absolutely. James, I want to ask you what advice you have for our young listeners, for those young people who are interested in finance in terms of where to start their careers. Is a startup a good place because you can take on all different kinds of responsibilities maybe that you wouldn't be able to take on if you were in a more structured, a more established company? Or is it better to go to that bigger, more established company because the best practices are already in place? I think both approaches can lead you where you want to go and maybe stepping back even further, keep in mind that you don't need to have your plan completely mapped out from day one to be really, really successful in finance or in my opinion, any discipline. As a matter of fact, I, I certainly didn't know. Yeah, I certainly didn't know that I was going to be where I am today when I was 22. And I definitely didn't know I was going to take this path to get there. So I think there's pros and cons to starting your career at a big public accounting company that's well known, a big four. And there's pros to starting at a little local tax firm too, if that's what you want to do. Or, you know, you can go into a small bank or you can go into a big bank and definitely have to weigh those pros and cons. But I, I think that my personal career trajectory has shown that it really is what you make of it. And you can reinvent yourself. It's very easy to reinvent yourself when you're in your 20s. So if you start down one path and you realize that's not the right path, pivot, 
go for it. Even though it's scary, go for it because, you know, I, I've seen other people do it. I certainly did it. I mentioned that I started at a public accounting firm and I ended up working for a microfinance bank in Haiti and helping to run a microfinance bank in Haiti. It's totally achievable. I guess my, my personal bias a little bit, honestly, is to seriously consider working for small organizations. Nothing against the big companies because there's so much to be gained. The name recognition, there's lots of great skills, there's lots of best practices to learn. But if you go for a small organization, whether it's a startup or a small regional you know, public accounting firm or whatever the case may be, you are going to be thrown in the deep end right away, which is a little bit scary and also requires that you swim. And you learn how to swim super fast. You learn how to swim super well. You get exposed to things that you otherwise wouldn't get exposed to. The second day that I, this is not about public accounting, but the second day I was working for the microfinance bank in Haiti, it's called Foncose, I went to a meeting with the Minister of Finance of Haiti. And I was maybe 23, had just gotten out of graduate school. And here I am in front of the Minister of Finance. And I would not have had that experience if I hadn't thought differently and hadn't approached things a little bit differently. Those experiences really, really add up. But no matter what you actually start with, remember that you can you can always make adjustments and, and you really should have the, the confidence that even though it's scary, uh, when you when you jump, you're going to land in a good spot. Oh, my God. Such an important point. You can always pivot. James, let's flash back really quickly to when you were in college. You went to Villanova University and you graduated with a double major in accounting and finance. Did you know what you were going to do with those degrees when you graduated? <laughs> I had an, a loose idea. One of the things that uh, was really important to me, I think, and is maybe even a little bit subconscious, was that when I was growing up, you know, I was I was reasonably comfortable and I had really loving and supportive parents, but they hadn't gone to college. And, you know, I, I was going to college without tons and tons of, you know, sort of family knowledge about what college meant. And I I definitely knew that I wanted to study something that was going to help me have a career that was going to sort of be a straight line into a good paying job where I was going to be able to make some money and and feel really secure about that part of my life. I actually went into college, I think, wanting to study economics. And then I kind of realized that for me anyway, I wanted to do something more applied and accounting and finance seemed to make a lot of sense. And I really fell in love with the finance piece in particular because of the fact that finance is very multidisciplinary. There's so many different things that load into the decisions that you have to make as somebody in finance. And so I really got interested in that. But I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I, I did a internship with a public accounting firm and then they offered me a full-time job and I, I took that job and the second or third day I was on that job, I kind of looked around at everybody around me and I just decided that I didn't want to be in my 30s or my 40s and in public accounting. It just wasn't for me. And then I really took a leap. I finished out tax season with that firm and then quit. And I think my parents were probably a little bit horrified and a little bit worried for me. And I candidly didn't know what I was going to do. So I applied to grad school and I went to grad school. It was really only later that I found something that I felt really passionate about and was able to kind of connect all the dots that I'd learned these hard skills that were actually really, really in demand in the NGO space, the nonprofit space, because there weren't a whole lot of people going into that 
field or into those kinds of organizations with, you know, really rigorous background in finance and accounting. And I, I found a niche for myself. So things have kind of evolved from there and it, it was not planned, but it's worked out really, really well. And it, a lot of it's just come from consistently working hard, consistently being really curious, consistently taking little bits of risk here and there and, and taking some leaps with faith. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that has led me to a place that I'm very happy with in my career. I just want to do an audible here and say the point that James just made is one of the most important life lessons that you can take in right now. Because the truth is you cannot map out your life. I mean, you can try, but look what just happened. In 2020, all those people, maybe who were public accountants or who were fill in the blank, who lost their jobs because their companies had to lay workers off or furlough them or whatever the case may be. Because shit happens in your life. Some of it is really awful. And I should also say some things are really fantastic that you won't be able to anticipate. And it's about developing a comfort level with the unknown. And I would recommend that you embrace that uncertainty and kind of take it in as a life is going to be a series of exciting twists and turns and try to ride the wave. If you're a surfer, if you like surfing, if you like skiing, if you like snowboarding, think of it as that. You don't know necessarily whether there's an icy patch. You know, you're going over the snow. Maybe it's powder and there's there's a rock underneath. You don't know. Just trust the process. And what James said about your attitude and your mindset, work hard, embrace the, the uncertainty. James, what advice do you have for our young listeners, some of whom may be graduating in the spring of 2021 and are understandably stressing about how they're going to cobble together a meaningful career and be successful in what they do? It's a very hard and scary moment. And, you know, actually for a lot of people that I went to college with, they graduated just before or they graduated during the Great Recession, which in some ways, amazingly looking back on it, feels, you know, like it was easier than the moment that we've been through, you know, in 2020 with all of the fear that we have for our own safety, for the safety of the people we love. And then, of course, all the economic fallout that's come from that. So unfortunately, the last 15 years or so, we've had our, our fair share of, of uncertainty. And uh, I think we've had a couple of generations now of, of people they're moving into you know their professional lives with that uncertainty hanging over their head. I think that the the number one thing that everybody has to reflect on is even though it does feel scary and bad and it feels like the world is a little bit out of control sometimes that it does actually ebb and flow and things will get better. I'm I'm very confident about it in 2021. You know, I knew people during the Great Recession who had come out of school, had their job for six months and were let let go. They were just, you know, let go and here they are with an apartment in Manhattan that costs way, way too much money and they don't have a job anymore. And, you know, they found ways to make it work. They moved back with their parents or they took babysitting jobs or they found other ways that really were not the path that they had seen for themselves, that they had visualized for themselves. But to your point, stuff happens and it does get better and there will be other jobs that come your way and you will have lots and lots of shots. And so just let life come at you 
and look for ways to optimize what it is that you're doing. You know, look for the job that you can get or find the solution that allows you to sort of weather the storm and then be ready to come back when when the opportunity presents it, it, itself to you. Take everything, reflect, seriously reflect on the, the things that you learned and the things that you experienced during those difficult times and think about how they fit into your narrative. Think about how they actually really are changing you. This isn't just about window dressing in a job, job interview. Think about what that actually did teach you, what you actually did take away from that and how that has changed you as a person and then figure out how to channel that into the way that you describe yourself to other people and how you describe yourself to yourself. Think about that and, and just use it. it. It will get better. 2021 hopefully is going to be you know, a much, much better year and hopefully that's the year that things come back and hopefully as people are graduating, there are job opportunities. But if it's not 2021, it'll be 2022 and, and that, that moment's going to present itself to you. You just need to be in the right mind frame and the headspace to, to take advantage of it. Fantastic advice, James. And I know that you truly believe that you don't have to follow the path that everyone takes to become successful. Absolutely. I mean, the traditional path to being a CFO is you work for a public accounting firm or you work for a bank. And I didn't really follow that path. You know, I've, I've fortunately been successful in a lot of things I've done, but it's it's definitely an unusual path. And the thing that I've recently discovered in, in new ways is that that path actually makes me distinctive. It makes me different. It actually allows me to approach things differently. And I've learned how to explain that to other people and it's actually become an asset. So no matter what happens, whether it's the tried and true path or it's not, you will be able to find a way to, to lead yourself to success. And it definitely does not have to be that well-trodden path. There's lots of ways to forge a new path through the forest and actually do something a lot different. And I think if we are to listen to your professional journey, and frankly with mine, it's all about listening to your gut, listening to your inner voice the way that you did, James, your second day on the job as a public accountant saying, ah, this is not for me. Okay, I'll I'll work through tax season but then I'm out. You just have to trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because you brought up mindfulness before and is, it's so interesting because for me, mindfulness and meditation actually have been really, really valuable tools in my life and not just professionally, but personally, but developing that self-awareness and developing those mechanisms that you either use to cope or to focus or to concentrate or whatever the thing that is you need to achieve is, those are really, really valuable skills for your professional life that I really encourage your listeners to, to think about, to explore, and to know that if you, if you better yourself as a person, you make yourself healthier in all respects uh, as a person. If you take care of your personal relationships in life, these things all sort of are synergistically working together to help make you happier as a person, also make you more professionally successful. It's a full package and you really, really should listen to yourself and, and take care of yourself because professional success will come if you're taking care of yourself. A hundred percent. And my friends, check out Emily Fletcher's interview on the Time for Coffee website. Emily started as a musical theater major in college. She made it to Broadway, was a showgirl, very successful, and then had a crisis before she turned 30, was going gray in her 20s because of stress and discovered meditation. And fast forward, she is now a very successful entrepreneur who is in the 3% of women entrepreneurs who's making over seven figures. And her business 
is built around online meditation courses. So check her out. Two final espresso shots. Could you share a time in your professional life, James, when you struggled? Maybe you even failed or face planted. And the most important part of this example is how you persevered. And if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. So I actually went through a really difficult time personally, just not long before I joined doctor.com. And without getting into a lot of the details of that, there was just a big shift in my life. And, you know, sometimes as we've been talking about, shit happens in life. And it is very, very hard to be as dialed in on your career and on the work that you do as you need to be. You are going to have low moments in your career where you just can't get focused. Maybe you're burned out. Maybe there's something that's happening in your life that's just, there's no way that you can't be distracted by it. And the good news is that, you know, if you work hard in the moments when that isn't happening, the people around people around you, especially the people that will be your mentors in, in your professional career, the people that work for you, by and large, they understand that lesson that shit happens in life. And they're going to stick by you and they're going to support you and they're going to realize that you're going through a tough time, but you are somebody that's dedicated to the mission, you're dedicated to the company and that you bring a lot of quality and, and passion to the table. You bring skills to the table. Always think about that and, and realize that you're going to go through some difficult times. But if you are bringing value to your organization, you're bringing value to the people around you in those better times, that you are going to get the support back. You're going to accrue political capital. You're going to accrue capital that people will let you spend in those difficult moments. And you know, I think that that's a really, really important thing to, to, to just reflect on is that you know, p- people know that thing ha- things happen to you in life. But of course, you also want to want to make sure that in any relationship that you have, that, that you're bringing value to that relationship. And certainly that's the case in your professional life. So did this happen when you were at Mercy Corps or? It, it did. And it's probably, uh, you know, we, we worked together there and, and maybe maybe you didn't detect it, which is a testament to, to how uh, hard I, I worked to sort of, you know, try to keep that divide. But sometimes it did spill over. And, and I think that is something that, you know, you learn a little bit as you go through your career is that there's no way that you can completely have that barrier between your professional and personal life. I think the old conventional wisdom is that these are two separate things. And so don't bring your personal life to work. And certainly, you know, there, there's times when you need to try to avoid doing that, but but it's inevitable that it's going to happen in some way. You can't change the way that the personal adversity affects your state of mind and the energy you have. And, you know, the good news is that at Mercy Corps, and I've, I've found subsequently in lots of organizations, there were people that were really supportive of me and, and helped me through those moments. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm I'm so sorry that you went through such a challenging time. And oh my goodness, what James just said is so true. I mean, in 2010, I lost my only brother who was then 40 years old to a drug overdose and I was working, you know, (laughs) it's like we have these really awful things that happened to us. And I think we all experienced in 2020 at the same time this incredible challenge. And it's super important then to be thinking about the organizations where you work and how they manage you, whether they support you or whether they don't. Because honestly, that says more about the organization than it says about you. Because as James said at the beginning of this interview, I believe he said the most valuable asset and the most expensive asset that most organizations have are their people. And if you're not taking care of that asset, 
it's going to come back to bite you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what is a company? In many, in most cases, what is a company but the people that work for it and what they know, what they're capable of, what they're capable of doing. There's probably a, a generational divide in, in some cases about how companies think about the people that work for them. But certainly I think, you know, and, and this applies to all of your younger listeners, we are coming up with a generation of people, a generation of emerging leaders who realize the value of treating people like people and that you get the, the best financial results, you get the best returns for your shareholders if you treat people in that way. And it's a great opportunity for us because I think these generations that are in their 30s and their 20s and, and teens now really see that clearly and are reshaping the landscape of, of what what it means to be a company or an organization. And I, I think it's a great opportunity for, for all of us to, to actually change a, a big part of, the, of how the world works, but also great for us individually too. I would encourage your listeners to make that part of their thought process when they think about, hopefully you're fortunate enough to have more than one job offer, more than one opportunity. Tough things are going to happen in your life. So make part of your, your criteria. How am I going to be treated when the going gets a little bit rough? And, and how are the people around me going to be treated? Because that is important in my opinion. Amen. Final question. If you could go back to Villanova and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have right now, James, what advice would you give yourself? That is quite the question. That's so difficult and such a fascinating question. You know, it's like the quandaries and the paradigms about time travel. If I went back and gave myself advice, how would that have changed me? I, I think in some ways the journey is actually really the part that, that turns you into what you, you end up being. When I was in college, I probably didn't apply myself in my classes as much as I needed to. And I spent a lot of time doing things like coming up with a new newspaper and working on political campaigns. And you know, my GPA actually reflected that a little bit. And there's been times when I thought that the fact that I didn't have absolutely stellar 3.9, 4.0 GPA was a big mistake and that I'd actually really made an error in not focusing more on my classwork and being involved in so many other things. And looking back on it now, I don't necessarily see it that way anymore. You know, it's it, who knows, 10 years from now, maybe I'll have a different view. But I've gotten to the point where I'm in my mid-30s and I'm doing something that I like doing and i uh, in a CFO, COO position. And, you know, I feel like I've achieved quite a, a bit of, of success. And the GPA issue hasn't hasn't been important. What's been important is that I've had a really diverse array of experiences. I did really interesting things with interesting people. I followed passions. I took some risks and I did things differently. Sometimes I, I have seen myself as overly contrarian, like a, why am I taking the, the more difficult path when I could have taken the easier <laughs> path? But, but it all has added up to really feeling uh, a sense of success in a lot of ways and, and being able to, to bring success to other people around me, which is, is something that's important to me. So I, I don't know if I would go back and give myself any advice. I, I, to, not to, to dodge the question, I actually think that it's all kind of worked out. And the, the truth of the matter is all of us kind of move forward through life and don't don't get hung up on the, the decisions you made in the past. Don't get hung up on regrets. Don't get hung up on the thing you said to a professor that you 
shouldn't have said or whatever it is. Focus on what the good takeaways are from the past and focus on moving forward and, and really dream big and think about what you want to do in the future. And, and don't always think about just the 10 years and the 20 years in the future. Think about what do I want to do in the next couple of years? What's going to make me feel really passionate about what I'm doing now? Because from that passion will, will flow, I think, a lot of success for you. So yeah, that's that's my advice in totality is that I don't necessarily know that I would go back because I think, you know, all of these experiences as various and twisting and turning as they are, they, they led me to a good place. And it's, it's going to be the same for a lot of your listeners as well. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. And I want you to know, or I want to ask you, other than maybe your first job, James, have any of your prospective employers asked you what your GPA was? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And in fact, I'm not even sure they did with my first job. They might have, but I've been more hung up about it at oh times in the past than they ever were. I couldn't even tell you what my college GPA was. And it has never come up. Now, maybe when you went to grad school, you had to put your GPA in there. But the truth is no employers give a shit about your GPA. And I think the experiences that you had outside the classroom where you were following your interests and doing really fun things that you enjoyed were 50,000 times more important than that extra however many hours you would have put into studying for an exam. Couldn't agree more. I Nowadays, I think a lot more about the time that I was at a house party with John McCain than I think about my GPA. And, Seriously? Uh, there's a million, yeah. It, you know, there's a million uh, examples of things like that where I look back on it with a lot of pride. I, I think a lot more often about the you know, small group of like seven of us that created a newspaper to take on the main campus paper at Villanova than I think about my GPA. I have very fond memories of that. And also reflecting back on it, it developed a lot of really valuable skills that have served me well in my professional life. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, study hard, uh, try to get a decent GPA. It can be helpful for grad school. There's, there's re I'm not saying uh, just uh, forget about your classes, but uh, don't get hung up on that. And don't get hung up on anything because the past is the past. And there's so many exciting things that you can do in the future. Oh my gosh, James, you have so much wisdom and you have led such an interesting life and had such a fascinating career to date. Personally, I think you are so much more of a well-rounded human being as a result of all of these experiences. And I know that because you have such a strong connection to who you are, oh my goodness, you are going to continue to do amazing things. I have no doubt. I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was absolutely wonderful. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.